I was thinking about the big three questions that everybody asks, the big questions that everybody in the world wants to know is where did I come from, why am I here, and what happens to me when I die? Probably where did I come from and why am I here doesn't really concern people so much as what's going to happen to me when I die. I've got a video that kind of expresses some of the attitudes of people in the world. This is not a Christian group that took this. It's just a group, just some guy went out with a camera and just asked people, what happens to you when you die? Let's listen to some of the responses they get.
What happens when you die? Sad, isn't it? There's a couple people that are close to right. But for the most part, they had no idea. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that means our bodies, <clears throat> we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Verse 2, we grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in this earthly bodies, we groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die or get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. Verse 5 says, God himself has prepared uh, us for this. Now, if you keep noticing what he's saying is we, us, he's talking to the church, all right? God will prepare these bodies for us. And as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. This is specifically referring, referring to the body of Christ because the world doesn't have the Holy Spirit, those who are born in Christ. Verse 6 says, so we are always confident even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. The King James says we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8 says, yes, we are, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies. For then we will be at home with the Lord. Hallelujah. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal, everybody say our goal. Our goal is to please him. Verse 10 says, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in these earthly bodies. Father, we ask now in Jesus' name, God, that you would just, God, you would speak truth to the minds of every person that hears this message today, God. Lord, all of the confusion and all of the doubts and all of the questions, Father, we ask, God, that you pierce through all of those, God, like a beam of light, God, and speak truth directly to the spirit and the hearts of people. God, we, we are not the Holy Spirit. We can't lead. We can't convict. We can't convince. Only your spirit can do that. God, your word says no man can come to you unless he's drawn by your spirit. God, I pray today that you draw people by your spirit. Now, Lord, we're here to declare the truth. And, Lord, you said that when people know the truth, that it is the truth that makes them free. God, those that are bound, God, by the chains of sin, Lord, we pray those chains will be broken today. In Jesus' name, Lord, those of us that know the truth, God, may we see the severity of God. Of the, uh, and, and, God, the weightiness and the burden of the truth that we carry, the responsibility that we have to be a light to a dying world, Lord, a world that is filled with people that's confused, that are clueless about what is going to happen to them. 
once this life is over. Lord, you've given us this window of time. Lord, you said that our life is like a vapor of smoke. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's like the grass of the field. Today it's here, tomorrow it's thrown into the oven. And so, Lord, while we have this window of time, Lord, may we use it, God, to draw people to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Paul is writing the letters that he wrote to the church at Corinth. He wrote two letters to them. The first one, he wrote to the letter to them because of the misconduct that was going on in the church. The city of Corinth is a port city. If if you look on a map, you have two seas that come together, and there's a little narrow mass of land, and Corinth is right in the middle there. So rather than the ships going all the way around the southern part of Africa, they would come to these ports unload their cargo, carry it by land over to the other port and load it on the ship and continue on, and they would come right through Corinth. So everything was in Corinth. It was kind of like New York City. (laughs) You could find everything there, and it's like they never slept. Well, as a result of that, there were many cultures that came to live there, and when they did, they brought with them all of their different ideas and thoughts and religious practices and stuff. And so there were also Jewish people that grew up that, that were there that grew up learning the Torah and the laws of God. And so they knew what God expected of them. Other people didn't. It's kind of like America. A lot of people that, that, uh, that are Americans, from your, from your history, we were Judeo-Christians from the origin of our nation. But over the years, we are a nation of immigrants, and people have come here, and they brought all of their different religions and cultures and that, and so it's a melting pot of all those things. Well, Corinth was like that. Paul spent a year and a half there establishing the church, and after he left, he heard these reports about all of this stuff that was going on inside the church. And so he writes the first letter. It's actually it's in five divisions. Five categories. The first one was on the division that was going on in the church. Secondly, he addressed sexual impurity and sexual immorality that was going on among the believers. The third thing he addressed was the pagan practices that was entering the church through how they ate food. The fourth thing was how they worshiped. And then the fifth was the resurrection. In each category, he points out the problem. And as the solution to the problem, he directs them to the gospel. Come on, how many of you know the good news is the answer? And he addresses the solution to the problem by pointing them back to the good news of Jesus Christ. And he shows them that that, uh, according to the gospel, you're not living what you're professing. And so he's bringing correction to them. The first one was the division. People, there was teachers that came in. Paul came in. Peter came through. A guy named Apollos came through. And what happened is people liked Apollos, and some of them liked Paul, and some of them liked Peter. And they started saying, my guy's better than your guy. No, he's not. My guy's better than yours. It's, well, I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And so Paul addresses, he's like, really? Really? Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is Peter? That's not what we're here for, y'all. Come on. Uh, I don't know who your favorite minister is, but so what? It's not about him. It's not about me. He said, Paul, said one waters, one plants, one sows, one waters. He says, but it's God. Come on, it's God that gives the increase. It's It's all about Jesus. 
And so he brings correction to that. Then he goes in chapter 5 through chapter 7, and he deals with the problem of, of, of immorality, sexual immorality. He said, I'm not there, but it's all better if it reported, reported to me that there's a man sleeping with his father's wife. So this guy is having a relationship with his stepmother. And he says, I'm not there, but I've already judged the situation. Not only are you to throw him out of the church, you're to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his soul might be saved. All right, so he dealt very directly with that. And, he, and, and other sexual immorality, he said, you're sleeping with temple prostitutes? <laughs> prostitutes in the temple? That was the Greek culture and the, and the Greek religion that they had temple prostitutes in the Greek temples. And so now it's crept into the Christian church, and they're thinking this is okay. There's some people that don't know it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage. That it's wrong to, to go lay with a harlot, with a prostitute. And they thought, it's okay. And, and that's one thing that Jeannie was saying is you can't convict people of sin. You know, before somebody can repent, you have to first help them see that what they're doing is wrong. And sometimes it's like you can't even get them to see that what they're doing is wrong. So how are they ever going to repent of it unless they're first convicted of it? And so that was what was going on in Corinth. They didn't even know that what they were doing was wrong. His solution was he pointed out that the purity of sex is only, only between a biological male man and his wife, a biological female. And they too will be one flesh. And he actually goes into detail about the marriage. And he tells the women, said, your body's not your own. It belongs to your husband. You're not to withhold yourself from him. You're to come together often unless you be tempted. And same thing for the husband. Your body is not your own. It belongs to her. And so he addresses all of that, and, and he says your body is the temple of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. And he said the body of Christ is not to lay with a harlot. Then he goes into chapter 8 through 10. He addresses the food problem that they're having. They're actually eating things that's offered to idols. And they understood in that culture that if you partake of this thing that has been offered to that idol, you are saying, I am identifying myself with that idol by taking this food. We are all becoming one. And then he goes into the body of Christ and the communion and he said, that's what Jesus was doing when he said, this is my body. It's been broken for you. Take this and eat it. This is my blood. So when you partake of that communion, you're saying, I identify myself with Jesus and I am one with him. And so he brought correction to that. <clears throat> then in, um, uh, he, 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 by bringing the solution, he said the reason we're abstaining from that, he said you can, you can eat meat if you buy it in the market and you don't know that that was offered to an idol. It's just a piece of meat to you. But if you know, if you know something, it can be seen by somebody else as being something that is wrong. Even though you have liberty, you abstain from that because you don't want to make them stumble. If you really love them, you will not do this, even though you have liberty, because your liberty becomes their license to sin. And so there's things that you may have liberty to do, but you shouldn't do them because other people see you, and it endorses that and says, well, it must be all right. So-and-so is doing it. 
And so love says you don't do that, abstain from it. Then he addresses the worship because they were coming in and they were being filled with the Spirit. This guy's jumping up and prophesying. This guy over here's got a word of knowledge. This one's got a word of wisdom. One over here is talking in tongues and another one's speaking in tongues and somebody over there, and it was just chaos. And Paul is saying, look, we're not here for you. It's not about you being seen. It's not about you being heard. It's not about you having this spiritual experience. God wants you to have that spiritual experience. But he, won't, he said, that's for you. And he said, if, unless it's done decently in order and there's somebody to interpret what you're doing and it's something that is beneficial for the whole body, then you need to keep that to yourself. Because the point of us coming together is what we do is to edify the whole body, not just one person. Because some people want to have a spiritual experience, and that's great. I hope everybody in here has one. Amen. But they wanted to be seen, and they wanted to be heard. So it became about them, not about the whole body. And so he brought correction to that. He said, let everything be done decently and in order. Then he, uh, then he got to um, the, the issue of the resurrection. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, the fifth category. In verse chapter 15, it was one of the big three questions. Where, where did we come from? Why are we here? And most importantly, what happens to us when we die? Well, in the church of Corinth, they said the resurrection, you're going to rise up from the dead? That's ridiculous. Nobody does that. And so Paul addresses it and said, if Christ be not risen, then everything that we're doing is in vain. Our preaching is vain. Look at it with me. I'm going to read some verses here. Stay with me. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. Then also those who have fallen asleep, meaning those that died in Christ, they've perished. Some of the people on this video said, well, you just, it's over. You just go back to dust. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Then skip down to 39. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh for men. There's another kind for animals, one for fish. There's another for birds. Verse 40 says, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. And there's one glory for the sun, and there's a glory for the moon, and there's a glory for the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body, and it is raised as a spiritual body. 
There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam, that's Adam that was in the Garden of Eden, he became a living being. And the last Adam, which is referring to Jesus Christ, he became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. All right? We're in our first state right now. But church, there's another state that we're going to be in. It's a spiritual body. I can't wait to get it, man. That thing is going to be something. I've already got my order in. I'm going to have a body like Arnold Schwarzenegger and a head of hair like Absalom, only holy. Yes, amen. I have a head of hair. Make all you women jealous. Verse 47. <laughs> the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the, the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. In other words, when we see Jesus, the Bible says we're going to be just like him. When he walked into the room where they were, the door was shut, he, he just appeared in the room. He just walked right through the wall. But he ate, and he had flesh. He said, touch me. I'm flesh and bone just like you. Man, that's a cool body. I don't know about you now. But that thing eats. It's just like flesh and bone, but it can just, whoop. Oh, man, that is going to be so something. Verse 49 says, and as we, and listen, that might sound like science fiction, but there were eyewitnesses to this. Yeah. You understand? These are eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did. The two men on the road to Amaze are walking with him, and when they realized who he was, he disappeared out of their sight. The disciples were in the upper room, and while they're debating on whether or not he had risen, he appears in the room. And he tells Thomas, touch me, Thomas. I am flesh and bone just like you. And then the next time he sees him, he's sitting on, he'd been fishing, and he's got a campfire, and he's frying fish on the campfire. He said, come on, bring some of your fish and sit down. Let's have a meal together. And he eats with them. Man, I can't wait. Verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, so shall we bear also the image of the heavenly man. I hope everybody on that video is listening to this sermon this morning. Verse 50 says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trump will sound and the dead will rise incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death, hallelujah, is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved, now listen to this, verse 58. Be steadfast. This is our instruction. This is instruction to them, to the church at Corinth, and to you and I. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let me say that again. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So he rises to them and brings correction to all his chaos and confusion that was in the church at Corinth. 
Then he leaves and he gets another report. There's been some false teachers come in, Paul. And they've got the church of Corinth turned upside down again. And they're making you a point of ridicule. They're saying that you're fickle, you're proud, you're not even impressive in how you look. Come on, it's not right to make fun of the way people look. We can't help that, can we? We weren't there when all that was going on. Uh-huh. You don't even get to pick your name. What were they thinking? And they made fun of the way he spoke. That's why I wrote in 2 Corinthians, I didn't come with you with eloquent speech, making known unto you the things of God, but I came in the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. They said he was dishonest. He wasn't qualified as an apostle. So he sends Titus to them, and Titus goes in. He's like, what is going on here? And so he props Paul up, and he tells him, look, guys, you're wrong. And he, he convinces the majority of the church at Corinth that they've been led astray by all these false teachers, and they repent. And so Paul writes the second letter to them, and in that letter he's establishing who he is. He's commending the majority of the church for repenting, and he encourages them to be faithful. And then he appeals to that minority that's in the church that's still confused and still in rebellion. And at the end, he is warning them in the chapter that we opened up with that you're going to stand before Jesus Christ. Let's read it again, verse five, verse, chapter 5, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians. He said, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive things done in the body according to what he has done, whether they're good or bad. And in verse 11, he says this, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Now, church, you should underline that right there. The, word, the Greek word there is phobos. It's where we get the word phobia. Where you're, phobia you're terrified. You're horrified. You're frozen in fear. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and also I trust I'm well known to your conscience. So he's reestablishing himself so that he can reach those who are in rebellion before it's too late. Now, many people today wonder, what happens when you die? We saw it on the video. Many people are trusting in, in their own imagination, and they're placing their trust in what they hope is right. Wasn't that sad? Yeah. I mean, I, when you're watching that, I'm, it's grieving my heart that people are so clueless about what's going to happen to them when they die. And, they're, and rather than, and I'm like, I'm hearing some of those answers. I'm like, you believe this and you believe that. I'm like, why? What would lead you to believe that? Are you just like pulling something out of the air? Well, I believe this and I believe that. Probably. I, I don't even know where they get that from, but it, it's sad. They're placing their hope in what they, their, their trust in eternal future and what they hope is right. Hebrews 10 verse 30 says this, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he's referring to the earlier verses in chapter 10 of Hebrews of believers 
Again, he's talking about the church here. He's not talking about people that doesn't know anything about God. These are people that are born of his spirit. Because he says in Hebrews 10, 26, if you sin willfully after you've come to the knowledge of truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. But a certain expectation of the, of the fiery indignation which shall devour the adversary. He said when they sinned under Moses' law, they were stoned to death under two or three witnesses. Come on, if you messed up under Moses' law, they just stoned you to death. He says, of how much sorer punishment suppose you he is worthy who has trodden underfoot the grace of God and counted the blood of Jesus Christ wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. So he's rebuking the church in Hebrews 10 because they're, they're sinning willfully and deliberately and he's like, do you realize what you're doing? God's going to judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in that condition. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth because the majority of them has come back and repented, but there's a minority that's still doing their own thing, and they don't care. They think Paul's off of his nut. And he's like, we're going to all stand before God to give an account for what you're doing. You can't just do what you want to do. You're going to give an account for this. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so he, he's correcting them in Hebrews 10, and it's also because they're sinning willfully, and also God will judge us by what we do, whether we use the gifts and talents that he's given to us. Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 5. He says he came, he said the master gave talents to three different people. He gave five to this one, two to this one, and one to this one. Well, the one that had five talents went out, and talent, he's talking about money, but in that he's talking about that whatever he gives you. The gifts he gives you, the talents, the abilities. When he gives it to you, the one that had five went out and made five more. The one that had two had made two more. The one that had one went and hid it. Matthew 25, verse 24, look at this. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown. I'm thinking, are you nuts? You're talking to Jesus, and you're saying, look, I'm the one who sowed this, and you're the one getting all the benefit from it. That's what he's saying. You didn't do anything. I'm doing all the work. What are you getting upset about? Are you hearing this? He said, you gather where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid the talent in the ground. Look, there is you have what is yours. I didn't take anything from you here. You can have your talent back. But his Lord answered him and said, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew I reaped where I had not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money to the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Verse 29, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will be, have abundance. But from him who has not, does not have even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Church, I don't know about you, but there, there's something right there that just goes, ooh, when I read this stuff. Huh? Am I by myself in that? Lord, help me. 
There's a judgment coming. What happens when we die? I can tell you what's going to happen. There's a judgment coming. For those that's faithful, Jesus said in John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. I want to be in that group right there, amen? Let not your heart be troubled. You believed in God, believe also in me. My Father's house, there's many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I go, I'm going to come and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you're going to be also. See, Jesus wants to walk with you. I'm, I'm talking about what happens after right now. Jesus wants to walk with you. That where he is, there you are. I had a vision of that one time. A literal vision of it. There was a place, Bob McClellan used to be a board member in our church, and he took me up to Bath County, Virginia. I mean, it's mountains like that, you know. And, and he, we were black powder hunting, and he said, he said, where are you going to hunt, Pastor? I said, I don't know. I said, but before the day's over, I'm going to be on the top of that mountain right there. I just want to go up, I go up on top of that mountain. It was a big hog, what I call a hog back. It was real stark like that. And I climbed, I, I was jumping deer all over the place on top of the mountain. Just to, if you hunt, they bed on the top of the ridges in the, the daytime, and they come down and feed at night, just so you know. So anyway, I, was, I made it up there, and I, there was a path down the center of that ridge on top of that mountain that looked like a, a highway. With, I mean, it was that deep and that wide where deer had been walking up and down through there. And I'm like, well, I know where they go. And I climbed up on this big old rock, and the wind was blowing up from the other side, and aren't cell phones great? This was back in the flip days. I flipped my cell phone open, called Jeannie. I said, you will never guess where I'm standing right now. <laughs> but anyway, in this vision, I saw myself walking down that path. And beside me, out of the peripheral vision, I could see a man dressed in a white robe. And just in my heart, I knew that it was the Lord. Not a word was spoken. And as we walked, we're just walking down that ridge in my mind, I could see what I described as angelic beings lining up on both sides of that pathway. And as we walked by, they would go like this. As we walked by. And Jesus was picking up rocks and throwing like this and sticks and and he knelt down, and he's, he's showing me something. Not a word was spoken, but I understood he's walking with me and talking with me and teaching me. Church, that is a description of every person in this room. That's the relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. Not just about what happens when we die. I'm talking about right here and now. He wants a relationship with you. Revelation 21, verse 6 says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes. I want you to say that with me. He who overcomes. Say it again. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You say, why are you preaching this, Pastor? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I told you about an event that was going on in our neighborhood. It was a, it was a demonic 
gathering. They were dancing around fires and summonsing spirits, and they were doing all this New Age stuff and Wicca and that kind of thing. And Gene and I stood and just took authority over that because the Bible tells me whatsoever things you bind in earth, they're bound in heaven. Whatsoever things you loose on the earth, they're loosed in the heavens. I understand that to mean whatever you do in the natural realm, God does in the spirit realm. And so we just bound that. But in my heart, I grieved for those people because I didn't see them as evil people. I saw them as hungry people. They're, They're searching. They're looking for something, and they don't even know what they're looking for. They're kind of like some of the people on here. They don't know. And some of them, they, they stick their head in the sand, and I just don't even think about it. And others like, what? where did I come from? Why am I here? And they're searching, and it just grieved me. And, and, I was, and as I was thinking about it, because I'm in my prayer closet. My shop is my prayer closet. And I'm out there, and I'm praying, and I'm meditating. And I remember I had a flashback in my memory of a, a relative that came to see us when I was about 13 years old. And I remember going with him, and right in the shadow of the church where my dad pastored, there was, a, there was a group of men in the community, and they were totally unchurched. They thought church was a big joke, and pastors and Christians were all a big joke because they'd like to drink and chase women. And, and so they, they took a store, and they brought a pool table in there and set up a pool table and was selling beer and stuff. Well, I love to shoot pool. I'm a 13-year-old kid. I, I care less about the beer. I just want to go down there and shoot pool. You know, so I went down there a couple times to shop pool. I didn't dare let Daddy find me down there. But my older relative came, and him and another relative, I'm not going to call their names because some of their family may hear, and I don't want to embarrass anybody. But they went down there, and I'm like, all right, well, I shoot pool. They're shooting pool. It's not a big thing. But then they started drinking, and then they started gambling and shooting pool for money. And I'm like, you know what? You're in the shadow of my dad's church. That, you're in, what you're doing and what I was doing is an insult to my dad. Now, I, I watched that person's life. They've, they, they're dead now. They've been dead for about 10 years, that person. His older brother died in an accident 55 years ago. Now, I'm nobody's judge, and you're nobody's judge. We can't say who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Only God says that. But according to what I see in Scripture... To the best of my understanding, he's not in heaven. And if, in fact, he's in hell, he's been there for 10 years. His older brother's been there for 55 years, church. And the reality of that hits me every once in a while. I'm like, he will never leave there, ever, ever, ever. There is no parole You don't get to the end of this. Once you're there, you're there forever. I mean, does that, this should wake people up. I don't know what will if this doesn't. Jesus said the path of destruction is broad. Matthew 7, 13, enter the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there's many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there's only a few who will find it. Isaiah 5 verse 14 says, Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. Church, it should grieve us that 
again, I'm nobody's judge, but unless those people on that screen that we saw doesn't learn the truth about Jesus Christ, they will go there. That should, that should, that should alarm us. Because you're either going to be right or wrong when it comes to eternity. There's no such thing as being almost right. You're right or you're wrong. What happens when you die? One of the men on the video said, quote, I don't believe we will maintain the ability to have a conscious awareness of ourselves." And I want to say, sir, why do you believe that? Why would you believe that? Because the words of Jesus in Luke 16, he's talking about a rich man who fared sumptuously, wore purple robes, and said there was a man named Lazarus who laid at his gate, and he begged for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs licked the sores. Then it says in verse 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. You know what that tells me? You have a conscious awareness of what's going on. He's tormented. And he sees Abraham. He can feel. He can see. He sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cries and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in these flames. I'd love to set that man down and say, sir, do you understand? Jesus is not telling a parable here. Jehovah Witnesses, they don't believe in hell, and they say that's a parable. That, to my Jehovah Witness friend, I love you, but that's not a parable. In no parable did Jesus ever call anybody by their name. He named Lazarus. He named Abraham. They said, well, he didn't name the rich man. That's because he will say to them who have walked in iniquity, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't call you by name. But he named Lazarus and he named Abraham. Later on, it says there was a great gulf fixed so that they could see from one to the other, but they couldn't pass from one to the other. He said, the bosom of Abraham was where all the Old Testament saints went when they died. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes of the Father except through me. He hadn't died and rose from the dead at that point. So all the Old Testament saints went to this waiting place called paradise or the bosom of Abraham. He told the thief on the cross, this day shall you be with me in paradise. Not heaven, but paradise. Because he went there, and the Bible says he, he preached to those in captive, and he led them free. The bosom of Abraham is empty today. Because he brought them out. And while he's in limbo between there and heaven, the Bible says the graves opened up and many who had died were seen walking the streets of the city after the resurrection. Because they, they're not bound in the, in, 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 in the paradise anymore, but they can't go to heaven until Jesus is ascended into the heavens and come back again. Isn't this cool? Wouldn't that be something? We just buried Aunt Bootsy two weeks ago, and all of a sudden she's walking down the street. like, And then she's gone. Amen. Eyewitness accounts, church. This is not fiction. This is not science fiction. Wi-Fi. This, uh, what is it, sci-fi? Sci-fi, yeah, Wi-Fi. Church, if we're to believe the Bible, then we believe that death is the end of life right here. But it's the beginning of an eternal destiny, either in heaven or in hell. 
The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of God. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you have to decide, do you believe the Bible to be the absolute truth? It's a decision that I made long, long ago, and I stake my eternal destiny on what that book says. People say, well, I believe this and I believe that. Why? This has stood the test of time. It has been challenged by some of those brilliant minds in, in, in uh, human history only to prove that it's true. I believe that it's given by the inspiration of God. God inspired those men to write that. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and most importantly, for instruction in righteousness. It instructs us how to be right with God, how we're to live our life, to be acceptable in His sight. The reason we need to make that decision is because we read it in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must stand before Christ to be judged, and we will receive whatever we've done, whether it's good or evil. The problem in the postmodern world that we're living in right now is people doubt everything. They question everything. I'm kind of getting in that category to some degree, because you hear this conspiracy about that and this, and you're like, I don't know what to believe. And everybody's got their professionals to make their point, and they've got their professionals to make an opposite point, and it's like, and so people are like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to believe. And it's just confusion. In my father's generation, people just believed what they were taught. And it wasn't because they were ignorant or gullible or naive. It's because that they were trusting they were more trusting. Why? People were more trustworthy. Huh? It's like everybody's trying to out to get you now. It's like you can't trust anybody. Well, back then, it was honor. I mean, when you shook somebody's hand, brother, that was better than any contract that you could draw. If you took somebody's hand and say, I'm going to do it, you're going to do it or, or physically incapable of doing it. You stood on your word. But today, past experience with people of questionable character, both in the church and in the world, has taught us, you better look before you leap. Huh? In the church, you, you got to, <laughs> it's hard to trust people today. So I understand the world looking at the church with suspicion. It's hard to trust. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. They'll be covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. They'll be truce breakers. <laughs> come on, they'll break a promise. People lie to you, promise you something, and don't come through. False accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. The church has never been hated more than it's hated right now. Christians have never been despised more than they are right now because they're good. They'll be traitors, heady, that means they're prideful, high-minded, that means they're stuck on themselves, narcissistic. Uh-huh. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness. He's describing the church. But deny the power thereof. From such turn away. 
Verse 13 says, but evil men, because he's describing the church there, but evil men and seducers are going to get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jeannie brought that up when she came up to make the announcement. You can't convince people not to sin. Furthermore, you can't even convince them that what they're doing is a sin. Why? They're deceived. They've been deceived by seducers and evil men that's waxed worse and worse. So the lack of character, people lying and deceitful, greedy, selfish, no natural affection, it's affected the way people see everything. It's the way they see the church, the way they see Christianity, the way they see you and I, the way they see Christ, God. So they're suspicious. At the turn of the 20th century, most of people in America believed that there's a God, and they believed in the God of the Holy Bible. But today, fewer and fewer people know anything about God. In fact, most people either dismiss the idea of God altogether, or if they believe in God, they make God to fit their own imagination. God is going to be like I think he ought to be, not what the Word says he is. Church, we don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on his terms. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, but without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God has to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. We've got to seek God for what he is, not for what we make him. See, a lot of times we make God like a vending machine. Or a convenience store. Show that clip. Let's get an idea of what, that's, what I'm trying to say here. This is how people see God.
Is worth it. Yeah. If any man comes to God, he must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder, not of them that put the coin in and push the button, huh? but those that diligently seek him. So regardless of what you think about God, the Bible is clear. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We'll receive whatever we deserve, whether it's good or evil. He wrote the same message to Romans chapter 14, verse 10. The latter part of verse 10, it says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Not to any other false God, but to Jesus Christ. And every tongue shall confess that he is God. So, then each of us shall give account for himself to God. Church, the only hope is in Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The judgment is a serious matter. And our eternal destiny depends on the outcome of that judgment. We, we want to be right about that. Not almost right. And we're either going to be right or wrong. It's going to, you're going to live good or evil or saved or you're lost. So in concluding... <clears throat> In my analysis of man's spiritual condition, I have narrowed it down to these four areas of understanding and concepts about salvation and God. Number one, there are people that are lost and they don't even know it. I think that was a lot of the people on that film. I'm not judging them, but obviously they didn't know who God was. They didn't allude to the fact that God is going to take them to heaven or anything or have an understanding about God. But they do this in their ignorance. And it's innocent a lot of time. And my heart was broke for these people that's searching. But they're searching in the wrong place for the wrong thing. And at, and at the end of it, they're going to die without God. But even though they're ignorant, they're guilty just the same. There are those that are infidels. They place their faith in pagan gods. Some believe that there's one God, but there's a re, that there's many avenues to God. So they're almost right. They do at least acknowledge God, but they're just eternally wrong. There's atheists that dismiss the idea of God. They're lost. They don't even know it. Really, I think what they're saying is if, I, if there's no God, then there's no consequences to what I do. So in my mind, if I can just dismiss the idea of God, then I can do whatever I want to, and I don't have to worry about it. I'm not convicted about it. And you have the agnostic and humanist. They don't confirm or deny that there's God. They just don't know and they don't care. Romans 8, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he points out that man is well, without excuse. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what they know, what they may know, what may be known about God is manifest to them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood. Do you hear that? Not only do they see it, it's understandable by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image like corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. So they're lost, and they don't know it. Second category is those who are lost. 
And they know they're lost and they don't care. They're rebellious. They know the truth, but they ignore it. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18 says, But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, because they hold the truth. You have to recognize what's being said here. They know what the truth is. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. They're lost. They know they're lost, and they don't care. They love their sin. Church, I've said this before, and and I want you to memorize this. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It'll always cost. Sin will always uh, cost you more than you want to pay and it'll always take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay it's fun for a season the bible tells us that but there is a payday someday the bible says be sure your sins will find you out then some are angry with god they're lost they know it because they're angry with god they had unbiblical expectations of god as if god owed them something People get angry at God. If they lose a loved one, especially, or a tragic accident, or somebody, something horrible happens, they get angry with God, like, God, why are you doing this? Why are you, like, God owes us something. What, who does he owe anything to? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned. What we all deserve is death. But instead he gave you life. Life is a precious gift that you didn't deserve. No one did. David said in Psalm 51, verse 3, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless. God is blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. We're in sin even before we come out of the womb, so God doesn't owe us anything. So when people get angry at God, it's like, what are you doing? God doesn't owe you anything. No matter what happened, he didn't owe you anything. So whatever his judgment is, he's blameless. If he gave you life at all, that's a gift, and it's precious. The Bible talks about the potter. The clay doesn't say to the potter, why have you made me thus? Is it not in the power of the potter's hand to make the, cl- the vessel the way he chooses? He makes one vessel of honor, another of dishonor. He's the potter. He makes it however he chooses. So people are rebellious. They love their sin. They're angry with God. Or maybe they're hurt by a brother or a minister. And they re- reject God. Then the third category is those that are lost and cleansed, but they return to their filth and their stench. They've known the way of salvation but they return back to it. Second Peter 2 says, For if after we've escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we're again entangled and overcome, said so the latter end is worse than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the ways of righteousness than have known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered unto them. It's happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog has returned to his own vomit and the sow to the washing that was washed to the wallowing of the mire. But the last category, church, and won't you stand with me as I read this one. I pray this is true about each and every one of you. A person that is lost, 
but they confess their sin. Let me take just a minute and talk about that. Confession. I know this story about this individual. I won't call any names or even any gender, but this person was, had did some horrible thing many, many, many years ago for decades, and no one knew but this person. It was a secret that they wanted to keep from the world, hoping and praying and fearing no one would ever find out. And one day, this person was discovered. And you know what they found out? That the people they had wronged said, it's okay. Because that person had repented of that thing and had lived for Jesus their whole life, a dedicated, committed servant of God, and lived in a self-made prison for decades, fearful someone would find out what they did. And when they finally was discovered, the person they wronged said, everything you did is under the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You look at Mary Magdalene. One of the most honored women in the Bible was a prostitute. Nobody looks at what she did. When we remember her, we remember who she was in Christ Jesus. She was one of his most faithful followers, a woman of honor. Church, the Bible says confess your faults one to another, that you can be healed. Because the thing about it is, no matter how bad it is, once it's out there, you don't have to hide from that anymore. Satan can't use that as a prison to hold you any longer. Because you put it under the blood, the Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And he's righteous, and he's faithful, and he's just. And he will forgive that sin, and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Carried that thing all those years. And healed by confession. People that are lost, and they recognize their sin. I pray today that God will convince people of their sin. You can't, you can't convince them that what they're doing is wrong. Only the Holy Spirit convicts. I pray the Holy Spirit convicts them that I've made excuses for this. I've covered it up. I've defended it. But I know in my heart this is wrong. And then confess it. I was wrong. I was a sinner. And then you repent from it. Repent just means you turn from it. Don't do it anymore. When the woman was brought with the issue, of, with, with the, uh, caught in adultery, he said, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone, my Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He wasn't saying what you did was okay. He acknowledged it was wrong. And he's telling her, don't do that anymore. Repentance means just stop doing that. Don't do it anymore. The category in my understanding of salvation in God is people that know they're lost, they confess their sin, they repent, and they overcome by walking steadfast and faithful, serving God for the rest of their life. That's the group I want to be in, church. That's the group I hope each and every one of you are in. I want to be like Stephen when he was stoned to death, and he said, I see the heavens open, and I see Jesus standing on the right hand of the throne of God. I love that story because the Bible says Jesus is seated on the right hand of the Father. But when Stephen saw him, he stood to his feet to welcome Stephen into the kingdom. 
Huh? Wouldn't you love? Whew. When you walk in, Jesus is sitting and he sees you walk in and he stands up. And he says like to the servant, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you master over many things. Man, I hope and pray that we all hear those words one day. It's not just about what God is going to do in the hereafter. As I pointed out in the beginning, it's about Jesus Christ walking with you right now. He wants to have a relationship with you. Pastor Joe brought it out in the sermon last week, how that Enoch walked with God and he was not, and Lamech and, his, and all of those. Those guys were, see, they, when they were old, Adam was still around. Their great-great-grandfather was still around. And can you imagine what it would be like to go to Adam and say, Adam, Grandpa, what was it like? to walk with God in the cool of the evening in the garden. Because he would come down, the Bible says, and walk with Adam in the cool of the evening. And then separated Adam from God. So he hid himself and he came down. He said, Adam, I, I come to visit, man. Where are you? God knew where he was. God knows where you are. Adam means man. It means man. Woman is just a man with a womb. Woman, where are you? Adam, where are you? God is calling out to humanity. He says, where are you? I'm here. I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. Will you come to me? See, if Adam would have stayed in hiding, he would have, he would have been damned and condemned. You have to step out and say, I'm here, God. I hid myself because I was naked. Who told you you were naked, Adam? Have you eaten of the tree? What did he have to do? He confessed. Yeah. God, I did it. I ate of the tree. You told me not to, but I did it. Woman, what have you done? Well, I did it too, yeah. The serpent beguiled me. God cursed the serpent. He cursed the woman. He cursed man, but he didn't leave them there. The Bible says he went out and made coats of skin. He shed blood. To cover their sin. And it was a type and a shadow of what God is going to do. He took a perfect lamb, the Son of God, and his blood was shed so that our sin not only would be covered, but removed. Church, I'm so glad that I can stand here today and say, My sin has been washed away. I've been cleansed. And it breaks my heart to see people. When you ask them, What's going to happen to you when you die? And they have no idea. And they don't know that God has made a way for you to be free from the sin that's going to take you into an eternal hell. You don't have to go there. God has made a way. That is the good news through Jesus Christ. He wants to save you, give you a future and eternity in, home, in heaven with him. And not only that, but while we journey on this earth, you can't lose because he walks with you and talks with you. How many of you have a relationship with Jesus Christ where he walks with you and he talks with you? Let me tell you, all of you, you just don't know it. It's like that vision I saw. He's walking right there, and he's calling out to you. We need to start listening. And he reveals things. Thursday night, we had the one service here. Somebody got up and prayed. I believe it was Abram. He got up and prayed, and he, he, he was praying about the, the no fright fun night, and he repeated what I've said 
God owns 365 days out of the year, every one of them. We don't back off a single day and give it to the devil. October the 31st belongs to Jesus. 365 days and six hours to be exact. All right? All belong to Jesus. And when he said that, I'm standing in the back and I'm like, God, you own every single day. And this is a day that the Lord has made and we'll rejoice in it. And this scripture came to mind. All right? What is that? Why did this scripture come to mind? He's walking right there. And I heard that and God said, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And I'm like, yes, that's Psalms 113 verse 3. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. The, the sun rises every day, church. It sets every day. Every day from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And I heard that in my spirit, and I'm like, well, what do we stop praising when the sun goes down, God? Because that's the way me and the Lord, I'm like, why does it say when the sun goes down? I'm like, what do you, you go take a nap, God? I mean, I didn't say that, but I'm thinking, why didn't it say from the rising of the sun to the rising of the sun, the name of the... And then I heard, well, you remember Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail? And actually, somebody else made mention of that in their prayer. Because I'd already heard that in my spirit. Paul and Silas is in the Philippian jail, and they're praising God. And at midnight, the earthquake came and shook the jail doors open wide and set his captives free. And then I remembered the disciples. He told them to go to the other side, and they're in a storm, in the storm of the sea. And it's at midnight, they saw Jesus coming to them, walking on the water. And I heard the Lord say, I work the midnight shift too. Huh? That's the relationship God wants to have with you now. And I got up and encouraged the body. God works the midnight shift no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing. God is on the job. That's the relationship he wants you to have with him. And so every person that's hearing this, if you don't know Jesus Christ and you've never confessed your sins, give your life to him. All you can do is just say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know I have. And God, I'm sorry. The Bible says if you come to him with a contrite spirit, contrition just means you regret what you've done. You're sorry about it. And a broken heart, he will in no wise turn away. So you say, God, I know I've sinned. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Just like that, you're washed clean. Bam. And then he'll say, go and sin no more. And to help you, overcome that, I'm going to walk right there with you. Not only that, but I'm going to put my spirit in you to convict you, to guide you, to teach you. And if you ask me, I will even empower you with the power of the spirit to be a witness to me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. 